This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Is there anything weaker under the sun than the human flesh? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Dwight Lyman Moody, Dale Moody, at the end of his life, the last year of his life in 1899. Joel, we have looked at very incredible, amazing people on this show, but D.L. Moody is one of those special ones because of just how much he did while he was on Earth. Uh, When I tried to list his accomplishments, it became too much for one episode to cover. Several of the preachers from former episodes had a relationship with D.L. Moody. Uh, George Mueller, who gave us that great episode on faith, knew him. Uh, Hudson Taylor, who talked about the power of God in your life, he also had a relationship with D.L. Moody. And Charles Spurgeon, who talked about recovering and dealing with depression, also met and had a relationship with D.L. Moody. All these men knew of this great guy because of just how much he did while he was on earth. Yet one of the things we came across while while researching for this episode is that there's actually a clip online, an audio clip of him speaking, of him preaching. He's reading through the Beatitudes in, in the Bible, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, and it's very old, very hard to hear, and it's incredibly rare that something like this exists from the 1800s. But we're going to play a little bit over you here. And again, it's kind of scratchy. It's kind of hard to make out, but he's reading through the Beatitudes here. And so you can hear it's it's you know the, the cadence of which he speaks is is different. It's very different than uh, how preachers definitely talk in today's day and age. Uh, and I do find it quite fascinating. Yeah, I think it's incredible that somebody who lived—I mean, he died 120 years ago. We can hear his voice today, and it's it's the only clipping that exists, but we can actually hear it. So, Troy D. L. Moody, uh, not unlike a lot of the speakers here at Revive Thoughts, came from uh, an ordinary poor household. Uh, his father was a stonemason, his mother was a farmer, uh, and he was the seventh child to be born. When he was four years old, his father died, and a month later after his father died, his mother gave birth to twins, so now making nine children in the family, uh, and with no men, no father in the house to, to provide for, the kids started, they, they had to go find work to provide for the, for the rest of the family and to provide for the mother. So at 17, he went to Boston to find work. He, he had trouble finding work there in Boston. He looked for a bit, couldn't find much. His uncle had a shoe store there in Boston, though, and his uncle offered him a job with the one requirement that he would also go to church. Because of his background, you know, the many kids, the poverty, the lack of father, he did not have a very happy outlook on God, on church, on just life in general. A uh, Sunday school teacher started talking to him, though, formed a relationship with him, and uh, he and Mo- D.L. Moody says that when he told him that God loved him, he said it changed something. He literally said it melted his heart. And he started to take his faith more seriously. He became a Christian from that moment. 
And the Sunday school teacher would later say he had never seen a person in a darker spiritual state and who was less likely to join the church than Moody was when he first met him. Around 1860, he founded his first school. D.L. Moody founded a lot of schools, most notably the Moody Bible Institute. Um, But when he started his first school, it had 60 kids at start, and within a year, it grew to 650. And Abraham Lincoln, freshly elected, uh, heard about it, and he actually came and taught a Sunday school lesson there. Now, this school was amazing for two reasons. The first was he was targeting children who were basically on the streets, who were, you know, from rough backgrounds, could not afford a normal education. Those were the people he wanted. He wanted the lost youth so he could tell them about God and change their lives. And the other reason it was amazing is that it was the teacher, D.L. Moody, had a fifth grade education. He, he was not exactly somebody who should have probably even been a teacher by like logical worldly standards. And yet there he was growing a school from 60 to 650 students by just putting in the work and trusting God. During the Civil War, uh, he visited several battlefields. He, he didn't fight as a soldier. He was a conscientious objector, um, but he preached both on the Union side and the Confederate side as a YMCA volunteer, and he did whatever he could to help out around. Uh, that school that he planted that was growing continued to grow, and it founded a church called Illinois Street Church uh, in Chicago. But it, during the Great Fire of Chicago, it burnt down, and, and a lot of the family's houses in that congregation in that school also burnt down. And uh, it was kind of a a depressing time. Uh, The only thing that he had left with him was his Bible that he was able to save from the flames. So after the church comes down, he kind of changes, switches gears. He decides to be a traveling uh, preacher. He becomes famous for a tour that he specifically does through Britain. Uh, He will end up preaching to thousands and thousands of people. I mean... Tens of thousands will come to see him preach and hear him and what he has to say. Charles Spurgeon will get word of it, will bring him before his congregation. And when he comes back to America, after doing this tour through Britain, the crowds pretty much stay with him. Everyone's heard about what he was doing. And from California to the Midwest to the the Northeast, um, everyone's coming. Even presidents are coming to hear him speak during these revivals. One of the most important things in D.L. Moody, and one of the things that we can see very clearly that he emphasized in his life was schools, was education. And he inspired a lot of children's ministries, evangelism groups. He founded uh, several different missions committees. There's one called the Student Volunteer Movement for Foreign Missions. And by 1911, it had sent over 5,000 missionaries to places like Asia and Africa. Yet, despite being that busy, he was known as a man who made time for family and friends, and uh, they always felt welcome in his presence. He was known as a very uh, warm-hearted person to be around. He would die in 1899, surrounded by loved ones and having lived a full life. This sermon he preached on temptation that we are going to listen to was preached at the end of his life. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed uh, this episode. I was there when we were recording the sermon part of this, and uh, it's... I find it really interesting. He he lays out examples of temptations. You know, he talks about different examples of temptation. And it's very clear that this was written in a different era to a different audience back then. Uh, you know, he talks about going to the theater, uh, you know, as a temptation. But, you know, back then it, it was a different place. There was, it was very uh, promiscuous. There was, it was a place to get drunk a lot of the times. Um, or he talks about the Sunday newspaper, um, which, you know, in a lot of ways kind of correlates over to our, our entertainment industry and our tabloids that we get distracted with today. And, and all of these temptations that he lists with, he'll, he'll set up the title and talk about the, 
you know that that example of that temptation and every time he said it i i always go dio moody what are you talking about that is uh, a weird thing and he'll go on to elaborate and explain and by the end of his paragraph you go all right i see where you're i see where you're coming from i see what kind of points you're trying to make there and pretty much every temptation that he lists as an example i feel like there's a you know relatively good modern day equivalent uh, representation of so as you're listening to it uh, again see where dl moody's coming from and I, I also encourage you to look in your own life and see what temptations may exist in your own life as well One of the most real things in this world is temptation. And the quicker we find it out, the better. When Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and his disciples were asleep, he woke them up and said to them, Watch you and pray so you do not enter into temptation. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Is there anyone on earth that dares to dispute that statement? Is there anything weaker under the sun than the human flesh? The spirit is willing. Most men would rather do the right thing, and they think they will do it. Tell them that they will do certain things inside of 12 months, and they would say, as the king did, Is your servant a dog that he should do this great thing? No, never. They will do it just the same. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't suppose that one of those eleven men who gathered around Christ that night believed it. He spoke these words to the three that were in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. No doubt they thought, there is no danger of our falling. We can sleep all right, even when he tells us to be awake and on the alert and watching. But one of the twelve had already fallen, though they didn't know it. Peter, the chief speaker of the twelve, was going that very night to curse and swear and say that he never knew him. John and James were to leave him, for all had forsaken him and fled. You probably couldn't find eleven better men on the face of the earth than these eleven. And yet Christ warned them that the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. There has never been a man that has walked this earth that has not fallen sometime in his life except the man, Christ Jesus. There is no one beyond the reach of the tempter. Keep that in mind. Life may run smoothly for a while, but the testing time is coming. These 11 men were to be tempted that night as never before, and when the testing time came, every one of them fell. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, that God may open our eyes to see how very weak the flesh is. I believe firmly that if the iron plow has not gone down deep into a man's conscience, if he has not made a thorough work of sin, when the testing time comes, he will surely stumble and fall. See what Christ says in the memorable parable of the sower found in Luke 8. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root. A house on a rock is a very good thing, but it's a poor place for a tree. These have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. Don't you see that in everyday life? 
Don't you know young men who started out and ran well for a season? Where are they today? What has become of them? They fell in the hour of temptation. The strength of a chain is in its weakest link. Mark that, in its weakest link. Let a man be at work on the ceiling, and the platform be held up there with a chain of ten links, and one of the ten very weak. The testing time comes. The man steps on the platform, that one link gives way, and down comes the man just as surely as if every link breaks. So bear in mind, fair-weather Christians are not going to stand the test. When the storms of temptation sweep over them, they will fall. There is no dress parade about Christianity. When the battle comes, where are these fellows you see at dress parade? They are gone. And just so with a Christian that has to be bolstered up by a godly mother or father or friend, or it may be his wife. When they are gone, he is gone. I have seen it over and over again. Lot stood all right as long as he was with Abraham. When he left the plains of Mamre and went down into Sodom, away from Abraham, he stumbled and fell. I can find about one million lots where you will find one Abraham today. Few men can stand alone when the storm sweeps over them. Away they go. Have you ever been in a forest after a great storm has swept through it? Where the roots just run along on the surface and do not have any depth of earth, acres and acres of trees will be torn up. A friend from Scotland said to me, speaking of a place where he had been, Some time ago they had a storm that blew down between four and five thousand of the finest trees on that old estate. Do you know why? Because the storm came in an unexpected direction. It had never come from that quarter before. It had blown in every direction but that one, and the forest wasn't prepared, and away the trees went. It is said that the Edinburgh Castle, in all the wars of Scotland, was never taken but once. Then the enemy came up the steep rocks at a place where the garrison thought it was so safe they needn't guard it. Very often, temptation comes in an unexpected form or from an unexpected quarter. When you are off your guard, hence the necessity of watching and praying, because if you are not on the alert, you will be tripped up by the tempter. Then Christ adds, let him that thinks he stands take heed so he does not fall. No man on earth is beyond the reach of the tempter. I used to think that when I got along a certain distance in my Christian life, I would get beyond the tempter and he would have no more influence over me. I have given that up. The tempter will follow you from the cradle to the grave, and the nearer you get to Christ, the hotter the fight will be. As someone has said, Satan aims high. When he wanted one to sell the Lord, he went to the treasurer of the company. When he wanted one to deny him, he went to the chief apostle. When he wanted to call down fire from heaven on those Samaritans who refused the disciples' hospitality, he went to John, who was nearest to the heart of the Son of God. The angels fell even in heaven. Adam fell in paradise. Think of it. Speaking of the four watches, someone has said that the time a man is most liable to fall is in the second and the third watch. 
The first watch, he starts out and says, I must be on my guard, I am weak. He realizes his weakness and keeps his eye upon the master, going to him daily and hourly for strength, and so he is not so liable to fall. But in the second and third watches, he begins to feel his manhood and says, I am strong now and I can stand. So he begins to lean on the arm of flesh, and then the peril comes, and then the fall. As he gets into the fourth watch, he is nearing home, and he begins to see this old world receding from his vision. He realizes how weak the flesh is, because it has failed him so often, and he is on his guard again. He is not so liable to fall if he passes through the second and third watches, though he is always liable. Another thing about temptation, we are apt to think we have peculiar temptations, not a bit of it. They are known to all men. See what Paul wrote to that church in Corinth. There has no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Keep that in mind. The temptations that come to you and me are common to man. Every man who has gone on before us has had the same kind of temptation, although it may come to us in a different way. Men have always had the same jealousy to contend with, the same pride and covetousness and love of money and love of pleasure than you and I have. There are four great temptations that threaten us today. First, the theater. You say, my folks go. That may be. They may do lots of things, but the temptation is the same. I don't know of a theater from Maine to California that hasn't a bar connected with it or nearby. What is that bar there for? Fallen women go to the theaters and for no good purpose whenever they can. You say it is part of one's education to see good plays. Let that kind of education go to the four winds. For a child of God to help build up such an institution as the theater of the present day is iniquitous. A prominent and wealthy elder of a church in the West who used to say that I was bigoted and narrow-minded and puritanical in my ideas about the stage had a son who got married. Soon afterwards, a woman came along and put a bullet through his heart and killed him. He had got acquainted with her at the theater, and she had claimed him. The father went trembling down to his grave a few years ago. All the sweetness of his life crushed out of him. I would rather be narrow and right than broad and wrong. I don't want to take my two sons into a place where they will be tempted. Men are willing to be Christians now if it doesn't cost them anything, if there is no self-denial. But I wouldn't give it a snap of my finger for a Christian that goes to all these places of amusement and offsets his testimony. What we want today is separation from the world. It is one thing to pray God to fill you with the Spirit, but if he does, you must be separated from the world. When you want to fill a man with electricity, you have to put him on a chair with glass legs and insulate him from the earth and then pour the electricity into him until the sparks flame from him. And if you want to get filled with the power of heaven, you'll have to get separated from the world. 
You don't want your daughter or sister on the stage, do you? You wouldn't like to see your mother there. Then why patronize someone else's sister? Why encourage someone else's wife? 25,000 divorces in this country last year, and many of them the result of the theater. Did you ever hear of a party having a little prayer meeting before they went into the theater? Try it and see how you get along. Just pray that the actors may have a wonderful influence over you and build you up and do you a lot of good. The words would choke you. But you say, I know a number of good people that go. So do I. But I know a number of people that have to reap in their children. I have had poured into my ears by the hundreds tales of the untold woe and misery that has come into these families through the influence of the theater. It is easy enough to lead your children into Sodom, but it is mighty hard to get them out. It is easy enough for the father and mother to take their children in the way of temptation, but when they want to get them away, it is a different thing. You must be separated from the world if you want power. You say, I shall lose influence. Certainly you will. Let it go. You can't have that kind of influence and power too. Do you know the difference between influence and power? I will tell you. Ahab had influence. Elijah had power. I have never known card playing, theater going, horse racing Christians to get anybody really converted. They talk about their immense influence. I haven't any doubt that if you had dropped down into Sodom a week before its destruction, men would have told you that Lot was the most influential man there. You would have found him sitting in the gate. He had got into office. Perhaps he had been elected judge or mayor of Sodom. He had got on wonderfully. He owned some of the best corner lots. Mrs. Lot moved in the highest circles. Those Sodomites would have told you he was a good deal shrewder, a far better businessman than his uncle Abraham. And if he lived 20 years longer, he would be the richest of the two, a man of amazing influence. But I would like to know what power he had. I have an idea that when Abraham pleaded for Sodom, he thought, Lot has great influence in Sodom. I heard some of the people speak very highly of him when I was down there a few months ago. He has been there 20 years. He must have got more than half a convert a year. Surely there are 10 righteous men in Sodom. But Sodom was destroyed. Lot never won a convert, but ruined his own family. Go in for influence with the world if you want to, but it will die when you die. Where is Ahab's influence today? Where is Nebuchadnezzar's influence and the whole crowd of them compared with Elijah's and Daniel's? Daniel has been gone these 2,500 years and still he shines and is going to shine forever. He overcame temptation. It would have hurled him into the pit if he hadn't, and he would have gone down like these other men. He might have said, I will lose rank and position if I do not eat the same kind of meat as the king does and drink the same kind of wine. I will lose influence. He may have lost influence, but thank God he got power. Can you tell who the millionaires of Babylon were or any of the great generals? Their names have rotted with their bodies, and their influence has gone, 
centuries ago, but Daniel lives on. Why? Because he chose to do right and overcome temptation. Another great temptation is to disregard the Sabbath. We have a good deal worse foe than any foreign power right in our midst. This country will go to pieces if we give up the Sabbath. No country has existed a great while and been prosperous that has wiped out the Sabbath. It is easy to destroy, to tear down, but it is a thousand times better to build up. One great means of Sabbath breaking is the bicycle. Oh, you say, what is the matter with the bicycle? Isn't it a great blessing? Yes. And like all good blessings, it can be turned into a curse by misuse. Even the Sabbath has become a curse to many. There are more cases Monday morning in the police court than any other morning of the week. When a man says, I will leave my Sabbath school and my church work and take a spin into the country and worship the God of nature, then the bicycle has become a snare and will help bring about his ruin. I don't know what will become of the church of God if we cannot hold back the tide that is coming upon us. I was in Brooklyn not too long ago, and I saw something that was a revelation to me. Right opposite the church where I was to preach, a bicycle club started off for a run at half past ten, just as people were going to church. A few years ago, that wouldn't have been countenance in Brooklyn, the city of churches. It wasn't the scum of Brooklyn that were there, but some of the leading young men. And in that church where I preached, there hardly seemed to be 25 young men. Your bicycle can be a blessing, but when you go off and spend God's day in recreation and neglect the house of God, what will become of your soul? Are you not putting yourself in the way of temptation? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do not turn God's holy day into a holiday. Then there are the Sunday newspapers. I would not dare to ask how many of you read the Sunday newspapers. You think you must have them to find out the news. They have sermons too, fine sermons. Someone took pains to look over seven of the New York Sunday papers a while ago, and this is what he found in them. Murders and assaults, 12 columns. Adulteries, seven columns. Well, that's first-rate Sunday reading. Thefts, etc., 24 columns. Sporting news, 81 columns. Splendid Sunday reading. Theatrical notes, 44 columns. Must have that for Sunday reading, you know. Gossip and fashion, 77 columns. Your soul would get fat on that, wouldn't it? Sensational topics, 42 columns. People don't like sensational preaching, but they like 42 columns of sensationalism in Sunday papers. Fiction, 99 columns. Unclean personals, 8 columns. Think of a Christian man putting that paper before his children. Foreign news, 47 columns. Political news, 113 columns. Miscellaneous news, 92 columns. Editorials, 39 columns. Specials, 199 columns. Art and literature, 24 columns. Religious, three and a quarter columns. Splendid sermons and Sunday papers. 
911 and a quarter columns, and only three and a quarter columns of them religious. That is Sunday reading. Gabriel himself couldn't hold an audience whose heads were full of such stuff as that. I tell you what we want is a revival that will sweep these Sunday newspapers out of our country. There was a time when a man used to lock up his store Saturday night and have a rest on the Sabbath. It was a time of meditation and prayer and food for his soul. But now he locks up his store and he puts a flaming advertisement in the Sunday paper and does a bigger business than any other day in the week. Monday bargains. He takes up the Sunday paper to see if his advertisement is in right and his children wait for a chance to read about the games and the scandal that has been accumulating all the week. Then men wonder that their children are led astray. It is a wonder that more of them are not. Men, where is your conscience? I hope it will smite you the next time you offer to patronize a Sunday newspaper. Yes, a man will walk right into temptation and then wonder why he isn't kept from it. What the world needs is men who will face these issues and stand by the right, even if he has to stand alone. Then there is a fourth temptation, false doctrines and false teachers. I asked an atheist some years ago how he accounted for the creation of the world. Well, he said, Force and matter worked together, and by chance the world came about. That is as clear as mud to me. It is strange a man's toes are not sticking on the top of his head if things were thrown together in that way. A man won't believe that a watch was made without a maker, but we have more absurd doctrines. Some people would have us believe nowadays that there is no matter anyway. A man thinks he exists, but he doesn't. What is to me still more awful is that they say that there is no such thing as sin. I asked a lady who held this doctrine what she would call it if I should willfully and in cold blood take by violence the life of another friend who was present. It would be an error of judgment, was her answer. In the four years, 1895 to 98, we had in this country 38,512 murders while England, in the same length of time, had less than 600. Think of it, less than 300 lives were lost on the main, and every 24 hours, 300 in this country reel into drunkards' graves. And yet there are men and women teaching that there is no such thing as sin. Oh, come forward and stand against these false doctrines like men. The temptations are all around us, but blessed is he that endures temptation. Not blessed is he that is tried and tempted, but blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life. When, when D.L. Moody is talking there about uh, the theater and, you know, I think a point he's trying to make is, is dwelling around worldly people. And he gives the example uh, of, you know, someone defending themselves by, by claiming that they're, they have influence on it. You know, they could influence these people for the better. And he talks about how Lot in Sodom was, was he was probably the most influential person in, in Sodom. 
but yet when God even called for 10 people, you know, to, if there's 10 people that know the Lord, then he'd spare the city. There wasn't even 10 people in the city of Sodom. Uh, and so the, the question was raised, you know, what was Lot doing with his influence? And I think that's a great uh, a point to make, not only about the lies we tell ourselves, but if we do have influence, what are we doing with that influence? Are we wasting it um, or are we putting it to good use? And I, I thought that was a real interesting thing to, to point out. And one part I really liked was the Sunday newspaper. I love reading the news. I'm a news junkie, always have been. But he makes a great point when he looks through that newspaper and goes, and where's anything about, you know, God, sermons, anything in it? Can't hardly find a thing. And it's true. Like, a lot of people, I think, get caught up in, like, oh, well, I'm reading the news. It's good for me. I'm really, it's a godly thing, you know. And and the old quote, you know, a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And I don't think that means we should go around ignorant of the news. But let's not confuse reading the news as something even closely comparable to spending time with God. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by John Godas. If you like this episode on D.L. Moody, please visit our website, revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this sermon and all of our sermons here at Revive Thoughts. The goal of Revive Thoughts is to encourage you with words from pastors who lived long ago. If you felt encouraged or enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you can think of that might enjoy it or put it out on social media. And while you're on social media, give us a like on Facebook or a follow on Instagram or a retweet on Twitter. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our show so that you can check out every new episode on Thursday. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by The In-Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On The In-Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big